All right, shall we dive in? Yeah. All right, here I go. You're listening to the Useful Science Podcast. This is episode 20, recorded on July 29th, 2018. This week, we're going to talk about going outside. On this podcast, we bring on a rotating panel of scientists and enthusiasts to discuss a few of our favorite articles. We go past the headlines and dig deep into the actual research to figure out how it can benefit you in your everyday life. Let's meet our host for this week. Hi, I'm Ian Mahar. I'm a postdoctoral researcher at Boston University, and I did my PhD in neuroscience at McGill University in Montreal, Canada. And I'm Julia Torbett-Jones, and I am a lecturer at Victoria University of Wellington in New Zealand. I completed my PhD at the Australian National University, and my background's in economics and ecology. Hi, I'm Cameron Spencer. I'm not a scientist. I'm a web developer, web designer, and I work on the Useful Science website. So Ian, we're talking about going outside. You want to kind of give us a rundown of what, what we're doing today? Right. So it's summer, and so I was thinking in terms of uh, podcast topics, you know, it's a good time to encourage our listeners to go out and enjoy the great weather. I mean, for me personally, I always feel really guilty in the summer when I don't have to spend enough time outside enjoying the nice weather especially since I've always lived in places in Canada where the winter weather is really cold, and now I live in Boston where the winter can be long and messy. So absolutely any encouragement I can get at all to force myself to get outside uh, might be sort of a good thing to focus on. Uh, so that's been on my mind lately. Um, so I thought today we should uh, we might want to talk about going outside in the summer, uh, how to encourage people to get out into nature and uh, care about protecting it, and then once you get there, how to enjoy it safely. I'm really excited to be talking about this because um, being down in New Zealand at the moment, summer seems a far-off dream. But, um, <laughs> so today I'm talking about an article that I found in Frontiers in Ecology and the Environment, and it's called Bridging the Nature Gap, Can Citizen Science Reverse the Extinction of Experience? And I was interested in this article because it was talking about how Everyday people can get outside and um, form a connection with uh, the environment in which they're walking around in and checking out. Um, and so the main motivation for this paper was biodiversity loss. And biodiversity loss is a massive problem globally because the ecosystem services that biodiversity can provide are worth an estimated $33 trillion a year. Um, and it's not just about money, it's all about saving lives and stuff as well. We're able to um, get lots of our medicines out of the environment. Basically, at the moment, it's estimated that we're losing 10,000 species a year. So that's quite a lot. Is that 10,000 known species or we're guessing that we're losing species that we haven't even found yet? Totally. That's right. And that's why it's an estimate because when we don't even know how many species are out there, it's kind of hard to tell how many that we're losing. But yeah. the latest estimate has been 10,000 species a year. This paper was saying, all right, if we're losing this many species, how can we change the way that people are interacting with nature? Um, conservation attitudes and behavior often depend on the experiences that people have when they go outside. And so... What this paper is saying is that people have an extinction of experience. People are not spending enough time outside 
And this is reducing their connection with nature. Did you guys spend much time outside when you were kids? Yeah, I definitely, I definitely did. I did, but in like a, a suburban sort of way, you know. And, I wasn't, I, I wasn't trouncing around the woods. I was like, you know, playing, playing on the asphalt with water guns and stuff. Yeah. Well, I think this is one of the things the the um, researchers are saying in this paper is one of the challenges is a lot of kids grow up in urban environments, kind of like you, Cameron, maybe, and so having an opportunity to frolic in the woods is more difficult. Um, But there are lots of ways that even in urban environments you can get outside. And so nature-based citizen science um, could be a useful tool for addressing this problem of extinction of experience. So the idea is that, is there argument kind of that if we can foster an affinity for nature, then um, through this kind of emotional connection, people will get more involved in trying to protect it? That's exactly it. And so their argument is that if you can increase the emotional and cognitive connections people have with nature, then maybe this is a way that we can reduce biodiversity loss because people will care more about it and want to do something actively to reduce extinction rates. And so what this paper is doing, it's what's called a meta-analysis. In a meta-analysis, what researchers do is they go online and they Google to try and understand how many papers have been written in their subject area, and then they analyse these papers that they find. And um, that's always a really useful way as a researcher to kind of get an overview of a topic. If you find somebody that's done a meta-analysis, it can be really good. And so in this paper... What they do is they do a massive Google search and they come up with a number of papers that they then go on to analyse to understand what the motivations and outcomes are of people engaging in nature-based citizen science. Do you mean an actual Google search or do you mean Google as a generic term for searching? So generally, Cameron, when someone does either a literature review um, in which they're sort of systematically looking for studies, or a meta-analysis where they're conducting statistics on, on what they find. They'll use uh, a database specifically for scientific articles, like PubMed is probably one of the biggest ones. Um, it w- yeah, Google, you can, there is a search through Google Scholar, which is great, but I mean, usually one of these, there are specific databases that people use um, that, they'll, that they'll search through, like Web of Science. So what do uh, these individual studies that make up the meta-analysis, what, what were these looking at? Like, what did, that, what did one of these studies look like? These researchers only categorized uh, or reviewed studies that were focused on um, the project, so describing um, how groups of people came together to, for instance, look at bird life or to count the number of birds in a particular setting. And then they were only counting papers that also talked about why these people were involved and what the consequences of their involvement in this program were. Maybe we should take a moment and talk about citizen science and like what that is exactly. Sure. So citizen science is a way to um, get you or me or Ian to go outside and, for instance, as the example before, count the number of birds. In New Zealand, we have a citizen-based science program where there 
are opportunities for people to report the species of birds that they see in their backyards and the numbers of birds. And this can all be entered into a public database and it helps scientists um, get information about population counts in rural and urban areas. So it's not, it's not just outreach or education, it's we're collecting data that is useful. Yeah, that's the idea. It's like, how can we broaden engagement in science and actually get useful outcomes at the same time? So then if I understand you correctly, then the, their meta-analysis was not looking at specific outcomes as, as far as collecting data. It's, I guess I'm a little bit confused. It was looking at what the effect was on the people that were involved. Yeah, so they were trying to understand the emotional and cognitive implications of being involved in this program. So it wasn't necessarily doing the bird counts that they were interested in. They were interested in the people's responses to being involved and why they were wanting to be involved in these programs. So the individual, the individual studies wouldn't be focused on the outcomes of the people acquiring the data but they happen to collect this information about the people that acquire this information about birds or something else. And these authors uh, took all of that information and put it together? Yeah, that's exactly it. So that data um, collected on the participants is sort of a side effect. Of yeah, and so a byproduct, were, yeah. they might have um, done a survey before and after as to why their participants were involved and what the implications were. Those were the studies that they included in the meta-analysis. I mean, it's another great example of, of when you're doing experiments why you want to collect as much data as possible because you never know what's going to be useful later on for, for uh, an unintended purpose. Yeah, kind of like a byproduct or a spillover effect. Huh. Is that, that's interesting. Is that considered like good practice if you're putting together a study to collect data that you don't expect to need? <laughs> so when it, comes to, when it comes to humans, you have to get permission um, from ethical committees to get any information whatsoever uh, involving humans. But, you know, generally you want to get as much data as possible and then you, um, you filter out what's, what's relevant to what you're studying now and, and you just keep things on hand for, uh, for the future. So have we talked about the results, Julia? Well, what the results found was that um, participating in these programs did increase people's emotional and cognitive connections to nature. Um, and so then the researchers went on to say that using nature-based citizen science as a means to mitigate the effects um, of a lack of engagement and highlighting the mechanisms that drive people's willingness to be involved could be useful as a way of kind of addressing some greater biodiversity loss problem. One of the things that's tricky about this study, though, as the researchers themselves themselves say, to mitigate and reverse this idea of extinction of experience, you need to reach beyond people who are already willing to change, right? So you need to preach beyond the choir. And what they found in this study is almost everybody who was being involved in these nature-based citizen science programs were, being in, were getting involved because they already were interested in the environment or in science. 
Um, and what they also found is that there were very few studies, i.e. one study only, done on children. And I think this is pretty significant. Huh. Why do you reckon this would be significant? Well, I think the earlier we sort of get to people to change their attitudes, the better, right? In terms of influencing their later behavior. Yeah, and that's it. And only one of these studies was implemented in classrooms. Almost everybody was really who participated in the studies was highly educated. So over 60% of people already had an undergrad degree or higher. Overwhelmingly, the participants that participated were Caucasian, so more than 80%. It's kind of interesting because you, when you said that we're only sort of preaching to the choir, I was thinking, well, that's a pretty intractable problem because what they're doing is they're taking people that are volunteering to participate in these studies as people that are taking measurements. And I think you're only going to get people that like being out in nature, obviously, to sign up for that. So you're kind of stuck with, with only preaching the choir. And then the other issue is you mentioned uh, reaching kids and that there was only one study on it. But, I mean, I guess introducing nature-based citizen science into the curriculum uh, would be a great way to address that because then you get an entire population and you're getting them uh, at an age in which they're still developing interests and are probably more enthusiastic about new things. That's interesting, yeah. Of course, that, that, and that problem of the population being you know, largely older and largely Caucasian is sort of true for a lot of studies, right? Because it tends to be done in a college environment. Yeah, you end up just kind of having this bias emerging. Yeah, it's like how all the psychology studies are. The population is psychology undergrads. <laughs> yeah, the average age is like 21 or something. Yeah. yeah. I was just yeah. thinking about like what, you know, what, what, ha- what, I, what can I think of that motivates people to get outdoors that's not necessarily about outdoors? And the only thing I can think of is Pokemon Go. <laughs> So you mean like tricking people to go outside? Exactly. Pokemon How Go. You're tricking people to go outside. was yeah. Pokemon Go for that reason, right? Like, But yeah. when, but it's not too far off from what you're talking about, like, you know, counting birds. It's going outside and kind of identifying these things and hunting them down. you got to sort this of is, gamify it somehow. <laughs> this is what they talk about in the paper, too. They talk about that maybe there are ways that you could gamify um, some of these programs to encourage participation. So what I'm wondering is, uh, for the positive effects that they found, I mean, do we have any indication how transient or long-lasting they are? Well, this paper doesn't go into that. It doesn't go into whether this is just like a one-off so that people had a really nice time when they were out in the bush or the forest or the woods, and so they reported that at the end of the survey or whether there's any longevity to some of these behavioural changes. And that's one of the big things that is challenging to understand in lots of policy initiatives or like uh, voluntary programs is how long do these effects actually last and do they have efficacy over the long run? Julia, I love that you said out in the bush. Because that's, yes. <laughs> that's not a thing that we say in North America. <laughs> yeah, I suddenly realized that, which is why we suddenly see woods and forests. Yeah. <laughs> Ian, Ian you're, in, you're in Boston these days, is that right? Yeah. yeah. So I'm in San Francisco, Ian's in Boston, and Julia is in New Zealand. Wow, we're pretty we, We're yeah. recording on three time zones, two continents, and two different days because it's Monday for Julia. It is. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. <laughs> My Sunday dream's already done. 
And actually, I didn't realize it until we started recording, but um, but obviously different seasons. Um, oh, yeah. That didn't occur to me either. Even a summer-themed episode. Yeah, we were like, hey, Julia, do you, want to be on a, do you want to be on a summer episode? <laughs> it's like a little bit cruel, arguably. We're just like forcing someone to talk about summer in their winter. Yeah. Yeah, I must say, yeah. I've just moved home to New Zealand, and um, it's been a cruel surprise. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> you lose a whole summer. You end up with, yeah, mistakes. Yeah. Well, it's yeah, and it's cold here. <laughs> well, I, 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 you know, I in San Francisco, it's we basically don't have a summer either. Like I, there's not a day in the year that I don't leave without a light sweater. Uh, it's really? Probably about, it's probably about sixty degrees outside right now. Really? Because, I didn't know that. Yeah, because we get these, um, we get the, all this wind off the Pacific. Yeah. The way I've heard it described, I don't know if this is right, but the way I've heard it described is that there's this big central valley in California where there's a lot of agriculture that gets pretty hot. It'll be like 100 degrees in July. And that the rising air in the valley sucks all this cold air off the ocean and kind of across the Bay Area uh, and into the valley, into central California. And so we have these pretty constant um, eastern wind that keeps the city really cold. So a lot, of oh, the hottest, yeah. a lot of the hottest months in the valley, like July, tend to be some of our colder months. And then we'll get mm-hmm. kind of a warmer a warmer period uh, in September when it's cooling off in the valley. And I think that the winds are a little bit less strong. I remember I lived in Santa Barbara for a while. I did my master's there and we used to have June gloom and that was pretty grim. <laughs> was it cold or just kind of overcast? Oh no, it was just like first thing until about midday, it would, um, you would have just cloud and kind of foggy grimness and then it would burn off by usually burn off by about two so julia if their point sorry. is basically <laughs> getting sorry uh, we're in august now i gotta let this go sure. <laughs> if if their point is basically um you know we want to increase conservation efforts and to do that we need to get people um interested in nature and to have an emotional connection to nature and this is one way to do it and that will lead to behavioral outcomes in these people how do we actually know that these changes and attitudes will lead to conservation relevant behaviors you know what i mean so basically like even if we change their attitudes after they take part in these activities um the authors seem to be saying this is important for conservation but how do we know that it actually translates to changes in their behavior afterwards well, this study doesn't give insight into that. And um, that's one of the things that the authors acknowledge towards the end. They say, our review suggests that we are at the initial stages of understanding the true potential of nature-based citizen science programs in mitigating um, extinction of experience. Um, and what they recommend is that all future studies Uh, And programs include evaluation opportunities to investigate the effects of the programs on participants' attitudes and interactions with nature. But again, as you said before, to understand what the long-term impacts might be and how they might take that next step. So how do they translate some of their experiences here to influence their decisions in another space, for instance, contributing or donating to um, an NGO that might be working to mitigate or reduce biodiversity loss, this study doesn't provide insights into that. Um, But that would be an interesting space for future research. So for the listeners at home, is there anything sort of practical we can take from from, uh, some of these findings in terms of applying it to their 
either their relationship with nature or maybe their family life and encouraging family members to get out into uh, into the bush or the woods or, uh, or whatever? <laughs> well, I certainly think the initial indications from this study show that this being outside and taking time to be aware of your environment certainly increases um, people's emotional and cognitive connection with the outdoors. And although this study only examines one um, study of children, there is a lot of other evidence that indicates that it's important for these relationships to be uh, to be developed at a young age. So I think some of the useful underlying messages from this study is show that given that it's summer over in the Northern Hemisphere, um, it would be a great time to get outside and start, especially for kids, start building a connection, even in urban environments, with the trees that are around them um, and maybe spotting whatever um, urban birds are around and that kind of thing. But I think probably you shouldn't necessarily be doing that without sunscreen. Is that right, Ian? <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's a great segue. Um, so obviously, the if you are going to go outdoors uh, in the bush or the woods or anywhere else, especially in summer, uh, one of the most serious risks is obviously sunburn and skin cancer. Uh, everybody knows already that these are huge issues, but according to the Skin Cancer Foundation, more Americans annually are diagnosed with skin cancer annually than than, um, than all other cancers combined. So by the age of about 71 in five Americans will develop skin cancer. Uh, your melanoma risk is doubled if you have more than five sunburns. And I think just about everyone's had more than five sunburns yeah. that I know. Um, in some countries, the risk is, is even more severe, which will obviously talk about later um, in terms of uh, Australia and their their relationship with, uh, with sunburn and skin cancer. Um, so obviously the most important thing you can do is use sunscreen. Uh, again, the Skin Cancer Foundation says you, sh- you need to wear it daily um, and you should wear a broad spectrum UVA, UVB, SPF 15, which I'll define in a second. Uh, or if you're going to spend an extended time, uh, it should be uh, SPF 30. So I need to explain what all of those terms mean before you go any further. Yeah, and you said SPF 15, 1, 5, not 5, 0. Yeah, 1, 5 uh, is a minimum for your daily sunscreen. And for extended time outdoors, that would be 30. Um, so what all those things mean, uh, SPF is the sun protection factor. So the number indicates the fraction of radiation that reaches the skin. So... Um, SPF 30 means 1 30th of the radiation from unprotected condition reaches the skin. UV is ultraviolet radiation. So when we think of light um, in terms of electromagnetic radiation from the sun that is uh, on a spectrum of what light wavelengths. So the light we can see is about 400 to 700 nanometers or billionths of a meter. And other wavelengths that we can't see with the human eye that are longer, shorter than, than this range are also part of sunlight. So this includes um, UV light, which is just below, uh, so like 310 to 400 nanometers. So it's a shorter wavelength, higher energy. And it's filtered through our atmosphere for the most part, um, for most but not all places. And there's, um, there's certain places on the planet with thinner atmospheres or ozone holes, and their sunburn or skin cancer risk is much greater. New Zealand, uh, New Zealand, New Zealand. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's a massive issue in New Zealand and Australia. 
Uh, and I'm going to talk about a report from Australia a little bit later um, because they're very interested in it. But there are huge problems there, and it's primarily because there is thinner ozone specifically around that area. And their cancer risks are, are huge. So there, there's a lot of public service announcements, I'm sure Julie could tell you, that they talk about it all the time probably, right? Slip, slop, slap, and rack. <laughs> okay, that's Jeez. good. Is this still... Could you, wait, could you do a little bit slower? I wanna, I'm curious about this. This is... Slip on some... No. Slip on a t-shirt, slap on some sunscreen, no. slip slops. Okay, I'll get back to you. So I'll just work this out. They need to. They need to improve the campaign. Yeah, it should be. It should be easier. Okay, but but we should we should definitely figure that out. We should we should use their PSAs everywhere because it's super important and they're at the forefront of of uh, awareness because it's such a huge issue there. You know, you can talk about the ozone hole. Or can we talk about that right now? Because I've got. We I'm, can totally talk about ozone if you want. So um, I, we used. I, it seems like I haven't heard in America. I haven't heard people talk about the ozone layer hole in like a decade. Yeah. Because um, like, we, I, I, that was aerosols, right? We banned aerosols. Yeah. So that came out of the Montreal Protocol in the 80s. Yeah. Um, it was one of the more successful attempts at creating an international agreement that actually had some teeth. So, so are we still dealing with the consequences of that or, or is there just a natural reason for there to be a thinner parts of the, of the ozone? Still dealing with I it. mean, so there Still dealing with it. Um, right. So the issue with the the issue with the ozone hole is in the ozone layer in general is is more about um, we've had a reduction in the loss of ozone, uh, and so the rate has, has reduced compared to where it used to be. We've the, made rate, some the rate there. of decline. Yeah. So, but we, it's not that we've had a recovery right. uh, in terms of um, restoration back to back to where it's not an issue. It's still a very serious issue. Uh, in certain parts of the of the world where there is less ozone, so in those in those areas you get a lot less filtration of the ultraviolet light. Mm. So within this range, like we talk about UVA and UVB, um, UVA is about three fifteen to four hundred nanometers, so almost at the point where you can see it, and UVB is a little bit shorter. So the the UVB does more of the burning of the surface of the skin, but the UVA can also cause skin damage, including premature aging and skin cancer. So you really need something that covers the whole spectrum for ultraviolet light. So you need um, sunblock or sunscreen. So there's two types. Uh, the, the, the simplest is uh, there's several different terms for types of sunscreen, but one is called a physical sunscreen or sunblock or non-organic or mineral sunscreen. So these are basically things like zinc oxide and titanium dioxide. And they're really simple. They're just, um, they form a, just, uh, they form a physical barrier on the skin and this reflects UV light based on the compounds that are, that are there. Um, so they're, they're basically just a physical barrier or something too complicated. The other type that a lot of people will commonly use is called chemical or organic. Uh, in this case, organic means organic molecules. So it just means something that has carbon in it, not like the organic when you go to Whole Foods and pay more for vegetables. And stuff. <laughs> so these these um, are slightly different that they absorb UV light based on the molecular structure and they just reflect it as less harmful energy. Um, there's some problems with these and that some of them can induce allergic reactions. They can often be absorbed, absorbed through the skin and you can find it in the body. Um, oxybenzone is one example that's been shown to kill coral in reefs. So it's banned in sunscreens in Hawaii. Octanoxate was also banned in the same legislation, and it might also be harmful. There's one called uh, paraaminobenzoic acid, or PABA, that's been shown to uh, potentially be cell damage under UV light. 
Um, so there's there's some, and it also disrupts hormone function. It was banned by the EU, and they don't always cover the whole spectrum. So, you know, it would seem to maybe be a better option to go with titanium dioxide, zinc oxide. It might be safer. They, they cover a broader range. There's one nonprofit, and there's some controversy around them, but the Environmental Working Group that said the the weight of evidence indicates that both zinc oxide and titanium dioxide pose a lower hazard than most other sunscreens ingredients approved by the U.S. market. So, you know, are those you know, the ones that are like opaque? Yeah. So this is the whole issue. I'm glad you said that because that's yeah. what uh, I was about to get to. Is that they seem better, but there's one huge problem. <laughs> you can them. see them <laughs> exactly. So when when you when I hear zinc oxide, I think of, I think of a guy with a white nose. That's exactly right. Yeah. You think of a guy with just one stripe down his nose, well, which is always confusing to me because you know, it's like, we're, what, what, what are they using on the rest of their face? Or are they only concerned with putting their nose? But yeah, zinc oxide leaves this really visible white film. Same with titanium dioxide. Um, so that was a huge problem. So people didn't want to use them. So they used these, they developed these chemicals that were transparent, and then there's potential health risks. So there was a huge problem. Julia, did you want to jump in and say something? I was just going to say that if you look up any good cricketers <laughs> from about the, from the 1980s yeah. or 1990s, and if for anybody out there who doesn't know cricket, well, there's something. There's a good day of activity for you. Julia, um, I was I was just going to go Google a cricketer, but I, I don't know the name of a single cricketer that I could well, Google to look for a photo of. Well, I can just sure Google some go good Google cricketers. cricketer zinc. <laughs> So the the issue with these sunscreens, and I mean, I think everybody um, that's, you know, in their 30s or older can can definitely remember when you were a kid, you know, there were certain sunscreens that would just be really opaque on the skin. So people wanted to use um, sunscreens that were with made of a different composition, and so they didn't show up. And so they used these chemicals. Some of them have been shown to be harmful. So there's been one relatively recent advancement in the, in the, in the last couple of decades of um, nanoparticles for zinc and uh, zinc oxide and titanium oxide dioxide. Uh, so nanoparticles are basically particles that are a hundred. They're in the nanometer range in size. So if I can tend to a hundred nanometers in general, so they're smaller particles, uh, and the development of them allow them to use their, the same general properties as the larger particles, but they were more transparent when you put it on the skin. So it was a huge advancement but a lot of people were nervous they don't like the idea of nanoparticles they they're you know they they said it's not it's not been sufficiently tested and what if these nanoparticles get in my body and hurt me and and you know it's part of it's a general suspicion of, of any sort of advancement in science and distrust of, of companies that make money off products um, but it's a huge issue in terms of getting people to use sunscreen uh, in general because there's a 2015 study that shows that most Americans and probably people in general don't use sunscreen. So only 14% of men and 30% of women reported that they regularly use sunscreen on their face and other skin. Um, I found one. Really? I, there's a lot. Yeah, it's, it's that pretty is crazy. so low. Yeah, it's uh, it's a pretty it's pretty shocking. Well, what, and what I do we mean by regularly? Daily? I don't know. I can't remember exactly how they defined regularly. Um, but I mean, the, the recommendations are for everybody to use it regularly, meaning all the time anyway. So by the standards, um, the, the regulatory standards were all, or 86% of guys and 70% of women are not using it to the extent that, um, the skin cancer foundations recommend it. 
So we're not using it, and sometimes people are saying that they're, it's because they have concerns about uh, the health risks of nanoparticles or uh, using these chemicals. And so I I've, I've found a couple people that said, uh, one writer said, I generally find that uh, instead of using sunscreen, uh, I find that eating coconut oil, which has an SPF of four, protects me. And, eating and, um, it? Eating it, <laughs> really? yeah, yeah. Maybe if they're a really well, sloppy eater. Yeah. <laughs> all over their face. So, exactly. Just fit it all over. So I, I, uh, I'm skeptical of that. Uh, you know, then I found other people saying, you know, sunscreen's harmful. Here's a, a homemade, you know, you know, homemade recipe. And one, you know, I suggest using coconut oil because it's natural and, and all those things. So obviously what I, what I said earlier is we need something with an SPF of, of 15 or 30 and we need to cover this broad UVA, UV spectrum role to get these crazy problems. And people aren't using sunscreen and it might be partially, it seems a certain percentage of that is going to be people that just don't understand the health risks or uh, what they are and, and, and whether they exist. And maybe there's a lot of sort of pseudo scientific beliefs about crazy nanoparticles getting inside people and hurting them. So it's really important to sort of figure out if, if sunscreen is safe so people will use it if it is safe because it's obviously really unsafe not to. So um, with all these concerns and misinformation, we need to sort of address um, what the current consensus is and how safe they are. So I found a useful science post from our website at usefulscience.org that's titled Titanium Dioxide and Zinc Oxide Nanoparticles Found in Mineral Sunscreens Generate DNA Damage When Exposed to UV Light. However, they do not appear to penetrate the underlying layers of skin, minimizing their potential risk. So long summary, huh. you can see everything about it on our website. But it's, it's from an article in the Journal of American Academy of Dermatology. Um, not exactly comferting. I mean, it's, it's it, well, I think you'll find it is comforting once you get to it. This thing right. is, we, we just wanted to, in our summary, we wanted it to be as accurate as possible. So that meant a bit of a longer title, but also talking about every potential risk. So we are, uh, we are, we are thorough and so are the, audit, the authors of the, of the article. Um, the gist is... Oh, can, can I stop you for a second, Ian? So sure, we're talking yeah, about yeah. specifically sunscreens that use these nanoparticles. Uh, yes. Is that, actually, is that stuff actually on the market? Like, can I go into the gro- can I go into like the pharmacy and buy that stuff right now? Yes. In fact, the majority, from what I can tell in, in researching this, the majority of these mineral sunscreens or, or physical sunscreens or non-organic sunscreens that, that you'd find in the market, um, they're all titanium dioxide or zinc oxide, but the majority of the ones you'd find would be today nanoparticles. Okay. So this group reviewed a bunch of previous studies, similar to the last uh, study, we t- last paper we talked about, uh, and they came to their conclusions based on sort of looking at the findings of all these different studies. <clears throat> and uh, they started with the potential risks. The one they're most concerned with is that UV light hitting nanoparticles on the skin might create what are called reactive oxygen species uh, or free radicals that uh, can cause damage. So um, titanium and zinc have certain properties about them that make this a plausible issue. So basically UV light might hit them and cause these reactive oxygen species to occur. Uh, I don't want to get into too much chemistry about it, but it's basically a free radical is sort of an an atom or an ion that has an unpaired electron. It's very reactive because it wants to have a stable, stable sort of set of electrons around it. So it's very, very 
uh, energetic. It's very, it's very eager to sort of normalize, and so it reacts with things around them. So these are these occur naturally all over the place, but they're they can be harmful. Um, there's some theories that that this is involved with how we age. It's just constant activity of being exposed to these things, but they generally can can cause a lot of problems, potentially cancer and, and other things. So because when you um, when you hit these these compounds with UV light or, or titanium and zinc in general, they, they sometimes generate electrons. Maybe it's possible you get these really reactive things. So if you have smaller particles, you'd have more surface area and there'd be more of these, it'd be more likely to cause these reactions. So if that's plausible, we should really figure that out. So that's the biggest thing that people have looked at. Um, so there's a few studies on this with sort of mixed results. So one study found that if you, that UV irradiation of, Titanium or zinc uh, could potentially damage DNA. Um, another one looked at zinc oxide, found that it wasn't more harmful to cells in the presence of ultraviolet. But these studies were in vitro, so that means like they're, they're not in living animals, which is in cells in isolation. So the authors basically say at this point in the paper, like, all right, it's possible that this damage could occur. Um, but even then, it isn't much of a concern unless these particles are actually getting absorbed by the skin. So at so, the surface of the skin, it's not an issue. Can I ask what sort of damage do these sunscreens potentially cause? Right. So the idea with free radicals and reactive oxygen species, and again, this is, they're not saying that sunscreens necessarily do this. They're just saying these potential compounds on their own might give off these species when exposed to UV light. But they, they basically can cause a really wide-ranging um, type of uh, damage. So they can affect... Uh, individual proteins, they can affect DNA, so they can damage DNA and cause um, division errors that can lead to cancer subsequently. I mean, it's, they're really, um, they really can be pretty damaging in terms of uh, okay. a number of different biological features. So um, it's, it's one of the reasons we, you know, we, we, something we've, we've put a lot of effort into trying to, uh, to avoid them in terms of their, their potential toxicity. Free radicals. Yeah, so they just have so much energy that they basically react with this one anything. Wow. So they, the, the issue is that there's an outer layer of the skin that's called the stratum corneum, and it's got spaces between cells. Uh, the spaces are about 100 nanometers, and these particles are smaller than that, so it's uh, technically possible that maybe these particles can get in there and maybe get absorbed. Um, so they look at absorption next because the issue is that if these particles are only staying in this stratum corneum, which is mostly made of dead cells, that it's not really an issue if, if it stays there even if these chemical reactions are occurring on the skin, which we aren't sure if they even occur anyway, just if they're possible. So they review a ton of studies on this, um, and the gist of it is that they conclude that titanium oxide it just does not penetrate in the skin. It stays on the outer layer of the stratum corneum and the studies that, they, that have been done, which is primarily dead cells. It's basically the same thing for zinc oxide. Uh, a very small amount penetrates in one study, but across studies it's negligible or absent. Uh, and it wasn't detected in, in the blood, which is the important thing in terms of seeing that it actually gets inside the person. And even when they looked at zinc oxide and titanium oxide in combination, the studies found no absorption. Okay. So the, the conclusions of the authors are basically, we can't say with 100% certainty, and there might be potential risk of reactive oxygen species or free radicals when these nanoparticles are hit by ultraviolet light. But that's only a risk if these particles were absorbed past this outer skin layer, which doesn't seem to happen. But one thing they acknowledge is that they can't make any claims about injury or disease conditions in which the outer layer of skin is compromised. So maybe that would affect absorption. 
So in, in a condition where the, there's something wrong with your stratum corneum, you know, that's not something they tested, that's been tested in the past, so they can't make a conclusion about it, but under normal conditions, it seems safe. So if you have like an open sore or, or like a rash or something? Yeah, so they can't make any statements about that. They would just, their, their point is just basically um, it could potentially be a risk. Not that it definitely would be. Uh, and some sort of general skin conditions, I think eczema is one in, in which they said that that affects the stratum corneum, so maybe there might be more chance of, of uh, penetration past the stratum corneum. But for most people in most situations, there, uh, there should be absolutely no concern about getting getting in and, and toxins. They, as far as we can tell from literature, they said that um, this doesn't seem to happen. Do you know if there's been any longitudinal studies that looks at people who consistently use sunscreen and see if there's been any long-term impacts? I haven't. Um, I have seen people, I have seen studies that have done, um, so relatively short-term but higher intensity, so as if you were constantly in the sun for, for a short amount of time. Um, but I would be interested in seeing people that were uh, exposed for a long time, uh, like maybe years or something, or, or even just months. I, knew, I do know that there's, I know this is totally anecdotal, but I've seen images of people that were truck drivers. And so one side of their face is always yeah. exposed to the sun and one isn't. <laughs> and they look much older on one side. It's really fascinating. You could find some of those online. Um, yeah, so we, we, we're, we're pretty clear about... Uh, about the, the long-term effects, but you know, we, it's the, the, I haven't seen anything too long-term in terms of you know, months to years or something like that. Um, so th this is the findings of these guys, but more recently the Australian government looked into this issue and they made a report, skin cancer is a massive issue in Australia, like we mentioned, and they basically concluded the same thing. Overall studies say the penetration past the stratum corneum is non-existent or minimal, so toxicity is highly unlikely. And, um, Titanium dioxide and zinc oxide are, le are not likely to cause harm when used as directed, which is important because there's one last problem with sunscreen I'll mention real quick uh, in terms of scientific studies, and that's using it as directed. <laughs> Their study was just published in the journal Acta Dermatovenereologica that found that typical sunscreen application is less effective than it should be <clears throat> because people don't use enough or create a thick enough layer. Huh. So the sun protection is dramatically reduced, resulting in more DNA damage. So what do they, what, for the normal person, what's like the normal thickness of sunscreen? So most people, it's, so that's a great question. I was thinking, I've been looking for a way to describe it, like in, in words on a podcast, it's difficult. So the effective amount is <laughs> two milligrams per centimeter squared. Um, most people apply 0 0.75 milli milligrams per centimeter squared. So they're, they're, off, they're off by almost like two thirds. Wow. That's, a, a, that's a number that doesn't mean anything to most people, no. understandably. Um, the, the best way that I found in terms of thinking of a way to describe it on a podcast, the American Academy of Dermatology says use about an ounce or like a shot glass worth. Uh, I've seen some some places. Uh, a shot glass on more. what? Like over your whole body or over your face? Yeah, that would be for your. That's that would be for your, your whole body. Yeah. What's that? That's a lot of sunscreen. I, I, I oh, that doesn't seem like a lot to me. Maybe a shot I glass? Use right oh, my gosh. Yes. That is so much sunscreen. I don't know. A shot glass, I, I think, for your whole body, that Mind seems you, not a lot. If you were to include, like, your stomach and yeah, that's a good point. everything, like... Yeah, exactly. That, I mean, that's, that's, okay. a lot of, that's a lot of surfaces. Here's what I want to know. If I'm going to put sunscreen on just my face, and I'm uh -huh. going to squeeze that sunscreen into my palm, I want to yes. know, like, what size coin the that's dollop of, screen, of sunscreen should be. 
So you're in one of those people that uh, the previous study that I mentioned said uh, applies it to their face but not the rest of their body. There's a lot of people that do that. Much, many more people apply it to their face than the rest of the body. The study suggests that maybe it was for aesthetic reasons. People didn't want to age and they care more with that. Um, well, I don't I'll, know. I'll apply it to my, my forearms and sure. and if I'm wearing shorts to my, my calves. But Yeah, I mean the only and way to do it really accurately is to calculate the surface area <laughs> of your face and then get – Double it, and that's the number of milligrams to apply, which I expect no one, even our most <laughs> our nerdiest listeners, to ever do. But um, yeah, that's I, the exact amount for your face. I'm not sure. I guess the proportion of your skin that's on your face is the proportion of the shot glass full of sunscreen that you should put on your face. That's the idea. And so I suppose as well, this is just an average, right? So you might have, have you read anything about, for instance, if you had a really pale, if you're really pale, do you have to do two shots of sunscreen usually um, versus if you're perhaps more olive skinned or darker skinned? That's really interesting. So the studies that, that I looked at, I, I never saw that mentioned. Um, but colloquially, we, we, we see this all the time where, you know, you, you go to the beach with friends of different skin tones and some of them are more worried about the sun than others. Um, it seems that the amount if, – if you put on this 2 milligrams um, – 2 milligram per centimeter squared thick you know, this layer, then you should be protected from regardless of skin tone because the SPF is sufficient that um, you're, you're getting a minimal, minimal amount of UVA and UVB. Now, the issue with people with lighter skin tone is that it, it's basically, you know, they're, it's the sun that's getting to the, it's the amount of, of sun that's getting to the skin. So past that barrier, it shouldn't make a difference. So anyone that is putting on this amount should be fine if they're putting on a sufficient SPF and, a, and, this, and they're using a sufficient amount. Is there a correlation? But it's probably just more important to them, at a, at a minimum, it's more important for them to follow these guidelines because they could burn much quicker. Is there a correlation between uh, skin color and uh, skin cancer risk? So I have seen that. I don't know the actual proportion. I knew. I know that if you're fair-skinned, I did see that you had more risk, I believe. But I don't remember how much increased the, the risk is. It's also complicated because it's certain geographical factors um, can increase risk just because of just based on how much sun you get and what proportion of the of the time you're out in the sun so and for also example, obviously the size of the ozone hole exactly so <laughs> i was going to say you know if you're going to compare australia to to america you're going to have huge problems just in the fact that they're getting so much more uva and uvb because it's normally mostly filtered up by the by the atmosphere but they're getting so much more uva and uvb than us so it's, just uh, as an interest um fact i don't know if this happens in the u.s or elsewhere, but certainly in New Zealand, you will always have burn time reported. So on the in summertime, on the news or in the paper, they will say you have a seven-minute burn time. Whoa, wow. So you can only be exposed to the sun for seven minutes before you're going to start burning. That's crazy. Yeah. And so oh, that's a um, I'm not sure. Do you guys have that over there? I've never no. heard that. Right. No, I've never heard that. So growing up here, you um, or in the southern Australia or New Zealand, almost all schools now, primary schools, have compulsory hats. So you're not allowed outside without wearing a hat. 
in school. Okay. And my, uh, my school, my high school uh, banned hats. You were not allowed to have hats <laughs> at my high school. It was not allowed. <laughs> it didn't yeah. meet the dress, the dress code. <laughs> uh, Cameron, I found that, um, I think it was Cameron that asked, the, the regular sunscreen use, what that actually defines. In the survey questions for the, for the study, they define regular sunscreen use as uh, responding always slash most of the time when outside on a warm sunny day for greater or equal to one hour. So if you're outside for more than an hour on a warm sunny day, whether you always or most of the time. So it's not just like, you know, in the depths of winter, if you never leave your house, if you're putting on sunscreen. It's, it's specifically at times when you would use it, if you would always or most of the time wear it, if that... So uh, the, yeah. the vast majority of people don't do it, even in, in those specific circumstances when they want to. Interesting. And I did, uh, I just looked up the slip, slop, slap. <laughs> and it then. is difficult to say. Yeah, so, well, apparently it's complicated. There are many variants. Um, the initial was slip on a shirt. Slap on, slap on, slap on the 50 plus sunscreen. Slap on a hat. Seek shade. Oh God, this is a terrible. Seek shade or shelter. Slide on some glasses used to block out sun. Slip, slop, slap, seek, slide. That is oh, right. not helpful. Very difficult. <laughs> they have okay. definitely updated it yeah. since the okay. 80s. And this one, yeah, then they just said slip, slop, slap, and rap was also yeah. New Zealand. Um, where the mascot is a lobster, voiced by ants from ant. What now? I'm reading this off Wikipedia now. Um, they said some Canadian cities have also started their own slip, slop, slap campaigns, but I, I haven't been, I haven't lived in Canada for uh, a couple of years, but I definitely never saw that. Um, that so, what's the rap then? Sun, uh, sunglasses. I thought that was. Okay, I thought so that was the slide. Uh, no, that was uh, yeah. So they replaced slide with wrap. I, um, I neither of them is what you do with sunglasses. Of sunglasses. I know, right? <laughs> yes, um, they should. It should just be slip, slop, slap, and put on sunglasses. Then I, 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 I remember because otherwise, otherwise it's not that it's not that clear. But it's very difficult to say otherwise. I think it's. Um, I think it's I think it's a good campaign. Well, I was just important. going to say, like, I think one of the interesting things, um, and again, this is anecdotal, but what you observe, obviously, in Australia and New Zealand versus the US, given what you've we've been talking about today, education campaigns down here have been really focused, especially on children being aware of the risks of sun cancer. It's important. It, it's an important thing to emphasize is because it's um, it's it's something that we know can increase awareness because people do know these campaigns. I mean, you you definitely knew it. Um, like you you were familiar with it, and you know it's something that influences behavior. And this is something that it's easy to put on sunscreen, and even then, people don't do it, and the consequences are obvious and potentially severe. So you really need to emphasize it. Actually, I just looked up now. I looked up. A couple quick statistics. This is real quick from um, the Skin Cancer Foundation. Uh, one thing I saw is that in the past decade, the number of new melanoma cases diagnosed annually has increased by 53%, which is huge. Yeah. What The thing is that it, it's complicated about the term diagnosed there is that it doesn't mean that the actual incidence is more prevalent or we're getting better at detecting it. Um, I don't know. But I think that it, it definitely implies that it could be that, that people are spend more time outside or getting more sun or not using sunscreen. Yeah, hopefully but that's just detection going up. I think it's my first guess would yeah. be detection. Mm-hmm. Um, 
especially because people are probably staying and playing Fortnite and Overwatch more and <laughs> stuff like that. But, but it's it's definitely uh, it's definitely an alarming number of cases, and I I do think that people are getting better at getting detected, and it it should be obvious. Although all, all of this should be obvious to people, and they don't do it. But get yourself uh, screened for melanoma at regular. Uh, basis. I'm a hypocrite because I'm saying that, and I haven't gone to get moles checked in a long while. But um, it's a really good idea. You should, you should, uh, you should all do that. So the take home is: use sunscreen. It seems to be safe, at least for zinc oxide and titanium oxide. And when you do, use a bunch of it. And also, um, slip slap wrap, slip slap slop wrap. Um, <laughs> so we're so we're so we're we're saying that um, these uh, nanoparticle sunscreens are probably safe. Yeah, certainly, so the, certainly safer than going outside without sunscreen. Right. So the 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 thing is with all these things is that you you can never say a hundred percent chance that it's safe. It's just that you know, and it's difficult to prove a negative, and this is a huge problem that's pervasive in science. But we're basically saying, or, or what these authors are saying is, we've looked at the available studies which have been rigorous and use proper methodology, and they did not find uh, something to suggest an issue that doesn't prove that there isn't a potential issue it just means as far as we can tell it seems we can say with great confidence that it's safe and so that's that's the way you always have to couch these kind of things but what's definitely unsafe is not using sunscreen don't eat uh, coconut oil um just well you can also eat coconut oil if you'd like to you could yeah there's nothing wrong with eating coconut it's not relying on it well that's our show as always, you can find the show notes on our website. Just go to usefulscience.org slash podcast slash 20. So if you have any questions or if you want to suggest an article for us, you can email us at podcast at usefulscience.org. And you can also reach us on Twitter at usefulsci. Uh, that's usefulsci, all one word. Uh, I'm Cameron, and you can follow me on Twitter at usonic, E-U-S-O-N-I-C. I'm Ian. You can reach me on Twitter at I-A-N-M-A-H-A-R. And I'm Julia, and I'm on Twitter at GWF Water. Well, that's our show. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you have a very useful week.